Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Let's give them both a warm round of applause. Uh, hi, I'm Chuck Rosenthal, and I'm kind of the uh, official unleader of the, the Glass Table Collective uh, because we are a, uh, a group of uh, anarchist artists who get together and publish books. Um, this is our sixth season. I'd like to thank Skylight for having us and thank you uh, for being here. Um, it's been an interesting process, an interesting evolution. Uh, we and now we're in the process. We, in the, when we began, we began as a group of people that wanted to put our money together to publish each other. Then we began uh, nominating people that we publish, and now we uh, have open submission periods where where we publish books, so we're uh, the real thing. Um, we have one amazing covers. I think if you've seen, just a look at that. Uh, the art, the Ch Chicano muralist and artist Gronk does the covers for all our books. Uh, he's also uh, illustrated his own, he's published his own book of art and uh, illustrated uh, a book of sci-fi poems called Tomorrow You'll Be One of Us, which uh, we read here last year, Gil Ronsky and I. Um, so it's wonderful to see you here. And uh, I'm going to have uh, Gail Ronsky introduce Patty Seaburn. And then somebody's actually going to read. <laughs> OK. OK, hi. Oh my gosh, this is a great crowd. Hooray. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Um, Patty Seaburn is just, in a nutshell, one of my favorite poets. She is so smart and so skillful and so funny. Um, the poems are just miracles, I, I find them. I'm so thrilled that we have gotten to publish her book uh, with what books, Perfecta, and it is gorgeous. It has this beautiful wraparound cover with Gronk's artwork on it, and it really suits the poems really well, I think. Anyway, um, Patty has published three previous books. Um, Hilarity, which won the Green Rose Prize given by New Issues Press. Mechanical Cluster, which won the 2002 Journal Prize from Ohio State University Press. And Diasporatic, Helicon 9 Editions, which won the 1997 Marianne Moore Poetry Prize. And the American Library Association's Notable Book Award for 2000. So, I mean, she's really been recognized for her work and again, I'm just thrilled to be able to introduce her to you, Patty Seaburn. It's nice to read right in front of Does Santa Exist? <laughs> I, can, I think I can speak to that, but I, but I won't. Um, 
days of 1984. We would light a cigarette to make the L round the tracks curve. You could have one or the other, smoke or ride, Dioscuri of the habitual. And the first invites the second, tease taunt the lesser gods of small desires, regent and viceroy of ritual. We would drink Louis Glunt's Rouge, Blanc and Agri Bacabre, Bull's Blood and courtyard apartments with eroded pissing boy fountains. Dissolute cupids true to myth, debauched, perverse, where we kissed the wrong people, deceived one another and apologized ferociously, word trumping deed, faith over acts, though we'd exiled all creeds to Fort Lauderdale on spring break. We would kick street lamps to make them go on, off, and steal the white food casseroles of roommates from upstate New York who rehearsed being broke while waiting for their big break, slender as reeds despite the economy of starch. I bend and break not, wrote La Fontaine. We would down grain alcohol punch, lovingly ladled by charming Sigma Phi Chi Alpha Psi Omegas, cheat at eight ball in rec rooms, revere the bad advice of bands with dead members, opine, recline, learn the etiquette of embarrassment, leave very late, late indeed, walking home while one person steered a bike serpentine in overcranking no slow motion, sober angel. Furtive and fervent, staving off the three sisters, furies of suburban darkness who'd punish our petty misdeeds, misdemeanor carelessness and cruelty, while we woozily tilted at windmills with stuttered rhetoric from the survey course of our charismatic Marxist professor refused tenure. Class, everything is class. We would sleep in our narrow beds and in our friends' narrow beds and on the couch, any couch and in any loft and any food after 2 a.m. was nectar and neon served with night shift tolerance, dawn flaring in our saucers. We would watch grim or flippant French or German films on dates, not dates, all nuance and subtitle, auteur and sturmendrang, and only one or two of us didn't look like hell all the time, so we were well suited, reveling in the oeuvre of misery. We would say, here's where you'll be in 10 years, in 20 years, and it was far away and far from each other. The future as we understood it was something, someone else, Event versus increment, recruiting us for purpose unknown, that we could not imagine the new bodies, faces, names that would replace us. Could they replace us? We would trust each other, lie, lose each other. We would watch each other change, but you look the same to me now as then. Keep in mind how bad my eyes are. Astigmatic. My myopia simpatico to lines sketched in forehead and jowl by life lived with insouciance, neglect, and torrid behavior inviting more of the same. And we said the door's always open, which it was because fear didn't have anything we wanted. We wanted. We would light a cigarette and sit on the back porch of fourth floor walk-ups, and the smoke scrawled our fate in serif curls and listing sky as tablet, stars as punctuation, and when direction knocked, we turned up the volume, and when obligation, whose name we do not care to recall, called, we studiously ignored it. And when we were smart, we were very smart indeed, towing the line between earnest and florid. And when we were not, we were 
wrote Longfellow, rhyme-laden bastard serenading his lovely daughter. Horrid. <laughs> it's actually one of my great gifts is that when I meet you, I don't age you in my head. I meet people, I, I, I do look at my friends who I've known forever and they look exactly the same to me. I think it just, I really have bad eyes. I think that's it. I, I don't, I am, um, you're sort of stuck with me once you've got me, I think is the moral world. Um, I, I, you know, like many writers, I'm sort of fascinated with the salt and sea. There's something so just awful um, and wonderful about it, I, I guess. So I've written my salt and sea poem, and it's for my kids, Sid and Will. The shallow basin of the Salton Sea, haven for fish, bugs, and salinity, attracts birds like flies, flies like opposites, those wayward pairs, opposites like bees to honey. And their comparison takes a well-deserved hiatus, as some things can't be likened to other things in that good spirit of fellowship, cauldron where we all get along in the soup. Imagination bonds the worlds we invent and witness, and so the dolly that can hardly hold her eyes open, she's so weary of her faux porcelain veneer, earns free will, a name, a role, often found come morning near the door. If I have a soulmate in this universe of ideas larded with syllable, it is eschatology, study of the end of the world, as I cannot resist thoughts of the worst how I'd perish in a truly Victorian fashion without you. The way that, why pause, as though I am considering options when none suffice. I should adopt the Magnolia's ideology, folding beauty, slow motion descent and demise, though I was raised to be estranged from nature and resent her lessons, lousy pedant. I prefer road to green, vehicle to bloom, and I nor you are anything like a machine, despite politic mumblings of cogs. You can say cog over and over, but it does not make you round, notched, and oily. So when I see the motorcyclist legally, blithely navigating the carpool lane, I think he must contain a multitude, like Whitman. He must contradict himself, and his parts need have nothing in common save cooperation to proceed due north. If we are lonely, it's for destination, the middle-class cousin of destiny, which prefers to fly in a J-shaped echelon, trailing luck flanked by fate, and the contrary, as there can be no progress without tension, said Blake, and I believe him. The Salton Sea relies on man at his eco-worst. Aggie runoff, stagnant pools, no rain to sweeten the pot, too far inland for property to count, while migratory tourists with better than human names, eared grebe and the Yuma crap clapper rail, threatened, we are told, by do-gooders, touch down at their favorite stinky resort. The rider puts up his feet, Apollo with the muffler doctored so we will know he exists. I bike, therefore I am. Figure of leisure, of speed, skimming the divider stripes. No plaguing penchant for connection beneath a sky that makes no guarantees and so must be trusted.
I have this thing um, about free will. I really do. I have sort of an obsession with free will. Um, it comes up over and over again. I can't really figure it out, so I just keep writing about it, which is, I guess, what we do. Um, so this is called The Case for Free Will. One. The first sentence of this, poets are not supposed to say, we're not supposed to rely on truth. You know, we're supposed to divorce ourselves from truth and what really happened. And I agree with that. I'm nonetheless forced to tell you that the first line of this poem is true. So, the case for free will. When I was little, I thought the moon was Europe. <laughs> or was like Europe. Or would be like Europe by the time I grew up. Exotic and far, but not impossibly far. We would go there on vacation once or twice and learn about other cultures, those that spawned ours, some of which died like 19th century mothers in childbirth. By that time, we would have found culture on the moon, and the moon's culture would be something like Europe's. Many museums with familiar paintings and sculptures, canals and vast churches, old stone edifices, gaudy commercials, bitter coffee and crusts of bread, and couture and whores in the window with Ema Sumac piped in. Two. It's early enough in the day to pursue other interests like bass fishing and shopping for overpriced objects. Or you could get a cup of coffee and brood as to why joy eludes you at every turn, and you turn quite a bit. Consider how limitless the world seemed when Armstrong landed his prodigious foot in that weird powder and bounced along from there. Houston, the eagle has landed. Let's take a dip in Tranquility Bay. The astronauts, like gods, didn't comment on their feelings or suggest a course of action. They were too busy collecting rocks after uttering a scripted sentence missing an article and pushing that symbol into terra incognita. Three. I was awake, but not too aware back then. Vietnam in my living room, but I missed the casualties. I missed my father's heart attack, recovery. I missed the Shelby Mustang and the drum roll of assassinations, bound to leave my home and not return. Have you seen the pictures of the Saturn V separating? Stage from stage until the lunar module and lunar lander are completely on their own. Get me out of this atmosphere. Having done their part, they are dispensable. If you think that happiness as a matter of expectations fulfilled, think again. That's the only bad habit I ever picked up. Four. And still there's the moon, half dark, half light, never making us more welcome than on that first visit. How does it expect to be like Europe? People want to feel wanted, and there is competition. That hotbed Mars, Saturn with those more than cocktail party distance rings, and Venus, who seems close, beckons but gives not an inch, tease and tart of the cosmos. The planets cannot help what they are, locked in orbit. Can we? Before age five, I had free will. William James said, my first act of free will shall be to believe in free will. After, destiny took over, and everything I decided 
in the most labored fashion was already coded in the stars. Five, poor stars, rich stars. I, you know, um, uh, I like traveling when I do, which doesn't happen much. You know, I tend to leave early before anybody's up. And um, that's this poem, is, that's the point of origin for this poem. Um, it, it, it happens in a funny way. There's these, these sort of italics on the right. I'm not going to do voices or anything. I, and I can't, I'm not going to scare you. Um, this is, it's called How to Make the Familiar Strange. Leave your house at Obad time. The street lights still on night shift, signs defiantly bright in the font of optimism. San Bernardino Mountains still assume their position of prominence yet to recede in the climate of commerce. We are speaking now to those who live here, and they nod, yes, yes. I know just the vista, up Jamboree where Eagle Scouts plotted decades ago with visions of orange and strawberry reward, uniform groves glut of Edenic succulents. But it is wherever you live, sky stingy with light refusing to outline object. How poor a painter is Don. Before the taxi, slide on your pants. They are cool and popular, your shoes forgiving. These are pleasant turns of event. Pluralized turns like sisters-in-law, the S strangely assigned. What with the relentless intrusion of species-free birds distinguishing ash from poppy seed by your daughter's eaves. Local streets are named for trees beginning in A, B, C. Acacia, bamboo, saiba. You get the idea. The builder's wife, an amateur horticulturist, amateur romantic with a Jones for taxonomy. Neighborhoods need a logic or each self-absorbed lane goes its own way and you can't get anywhere from else. Cul-de-sac for those who don't speak film noir. Dead end with a chain link fence, meager shrubs, chronically employed poor postures, everything slung, sluggish, slowed by adjectives, inert from lack of action. Yours has enough action and two well-placed parks, cacophony of shapes for graduating gross motor skills and children bedeck the metal until darkness nibbles their ankles. Their great talent to ignore all beacons, mama's voice in searching timber, chill that turns shine to matte, chime of faux big ben at neoclassical high. And though to some this sounds like hell, Nothing impromptu. Routine is not my hobgoblin. Won't betray my whereabouts to the mirrored cops of complacency. So much everyday snake charming, baths and nectar, talking hummingbirds and an incessant good attitude, the strange familiar, my usual tense, toads and pearls of suburbia. Real estate, school board, boob job, country club. Grouse and praise on the semaphores of beach umbrellas, code and crumbling coffee cake, young boys' crop circle haircuts, and the pleasing coincidence of one ex-wife almost running down the other in the Ferrari supermarket parking lot. 
I didn't see her. When I left, my children beat their breasts. I hear their keening states away. When back, we will delight in a normal red wagon and the brain's capacity to forget a gift in moderation, a curse in excess. And what will I bring them from my travels? Books, brains, unfashionable kindness, a pitching arm, the antidote to indifference, a rescue, a mower, a cure, a shard, a peal of bells, ineffable. And for myself, three wishes that don't backfire, like those fabled desires to undo one always used up wishing to know what to wish for. The previous folly, entirely selfish or selfless. No more poverty, no more war. Five flawless carrots emerald cut in a platinum setting. And a pair of fabulous specs to help read the contractual print below. Drink this and so elect the potion's consequence as with only mild consternation the airplane enters ambivalence, the ground a visible fiction as we inch through clouds the shape of before. Before, two syllables Eve invented in the privacy of exile. Damn that snake. I grow tiny and vast. I have a little traveler on my book. It's nice. Um, I'm going to read um, two short more poems and then turn things over to Rebecca. Uh, a Year on Mars. A Year on Mars is nearly twice as long as a year on Earth. It takes the red planet 687 Earth days to circle the sun, nearly as long as I orbited you before I began to degenerate. You must be awfully affable, having befriended time and such a flamboyant wardrobe. Remember our first date, an illustrated lecture on the sex lives of ancient Romans? You learn that I am no classicist, can't tell an urn from a cistern, column from ruin, and slept through the dawn of the sundial. I discovered the duration of a perfect year. According to Plato, 36,000 years, his calculations ideal at best. That would have been some courtship. Thus began the infancy of our detente. When I stopped wearing Isinglass and Islet and began this igneous adventure, during lunch hours to please you, I searched for a true red, an ipsa dixit ipso facto. During the Iron Age, a period of ruddiness that I recall only vaguely as this low-carb diet affects short-term memory. Everyone was annoyed hurling invectives and bumping into the sun while waves swarmed the shore, not the idyll you detailed in your notorious memoir, and I am not that palled, triple-jointed lass stranded on some mythic isthmus. I was always called upon to break through the line, Red Rover, Red Rover, because I was bloodless, cool to the touch. How long it takes to say ice, Nearly a full year on Mars with that tall drink of a vowel and lazy sibilant. 
At this rate, we shall need Plato's full allotment to know what each other is capable of, stranding a preposition, widowing a noun. While mission control is still giving orders and perfection is so far away. I want to thank everybody in the whole world. I want to thank specifically those of you who are here. And I, th I want to thank What Books and Gail and Chuck and the whole um, posse, which I'm really so happy to be a part of. And, um, and thanks, Skylight. How fabulous you guys are. I want to live here. I may, may not leave. Um, the final poem I'm going to read is, uh, again, I, I know we're not supposed to say this, but I, uh, I read the New York Times um, wedding announcements. I haven't read them for a while. I used to be sort of addicted to them. Um, I'm envious, yes. Um, and uh, it took me d decades to realize I wasn't important enough and that there was some, some class thing, indeed, going on of why I would never be in the um, New York Times wedding announcements. But this, this actually, this is also, this little short part of this poem is true. Sorry. Uh, again, thank you guys. House Brand. Yesterday, a man named Stephen Alternative wed a nice girl with the last name Smith. <laughs> you know, it's just, this is one of those moments where you can say nothing else. You can't make this shit up. You know, I mean, that's right. Yesterday, a man named Stephen Alternative wed a nice girl with the last name Smith. She became Barbara Alternative. What would it be like to be forever the other? My name remained my own. I know. Don't tell me. It's my father's name. I am still steeped in the patriarchy and worse. A name shortened from endless Eastern European glottal syllabics for what shtetl from which we hailed or the blue-collar profession my ancestors performed with such integrity to satisfy the homogeny police. Tell me again with a sharp stick. I should have chosen a new name in some uncorrupted language. But I stuck with the status quo because Latin holds up well over time. I thought everyone would do this. I meant to fit in. It backfired. I have a lot of dinner parties and try to invite people not like me, not like each other. No one has a very good time, but no one leaves early out of fear they will be the subject of chortling. At home in bed, they think glad thoughts about the course of their lives, and when they turn off the lights and the moon turns on, they say aloud, Hello, nothingness. Where have you been hiding? Thanks. Well, I want to thank you for coming, too. Um, and, um, you know, I really love teaching. I love all kinds of things about teaching, and I love teaching all of my students. Um, but as I've been, and a bunch of them are here, and I could say this about every one of them, but maybe one of the things 
that, I don't know, one of the things that I love the most, or maybe this is the first time I've been able to say this in public, but to be able to say I was Rebecca Brown's teacher um, is amazing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry. She just showed up one day. Um, I knew her as a poet. Um, there had been word that there was, you know, she's a pretty good poet. I couldn't figure out what she was doing taking fiction writing classes, and then I couldn't figure out what she was doing taking poetry classes, because clearly she was a fiction writer. As it turns out, Rebecca Brown can write anything. Um, and she's been doing that ever since I met her. I, I guess it was sometime in the 90s. She grew up, she graduated, she went away to Europe, she taught there, she went away to get a PhD. Um, and she contacted me and said, will you sit on my um, dissertation committee? And she, we don't have enough to do teaching four classes. So I said, sure, um, because I wouldn't have passed up the opportunity. The book blew me away. Um, and it was such a pleasure and so exciting some years later to have the opportunity to nominate it for publication by What Books and now to be able to see it in this gorgeous form. Um, Rebecca is an amazing person. She's the recipient of an honorable, some of you will recognize these awards, the recipient of an honorable mention from the Academy of American Poets, the Rachel Sherwood Prize for Poetry, and first place in the LACC Writing Contest for Creative Nonfiction. This is her first novel. She's just back this year from a Fulbright in, um, Kanur University in Kerala, India. Of course, that's where she'd go. Um, Rebecca does teach at Hunter College, and her work has appeared previously in such places as American Literary Review, Confrontation, um, 88, a journal of contemporary American poetry, Eclipse, other journals I can't pronounce the names of, and it's really a tremendous pleasure to introduce her to you and to share her with you tonight. Thank you. Hello. Thank you, Kate, for that introduction. It was awesome. Um, I just want to say a little bit about the book before I start reading from it, um, because there are four different narrators, and three of them have my same name. So I'll try to I'll distinguish them a little bit as I um, go through. Uh, but the book is mostly about a woman, real woman, uh, who was alive in the 19th century. And she's the first to say that Shakespeare did not write his own works. So um, she thought a secret society headed by Sir Francis Bacon were the real authors. Um, and this is really her fictional autobiography. But I'm going to start with the, the preface. This is, the narrator of the preface is Rebecca Brown. <laughs> Dear reader, I shall voluntarily make it known that I was unable to visit the archives that contained Delia Bacon's work as frequently as I would have liked. 
To be frank, I spent a mere few hours perusing the collection as I had an important engagement that required examining the cultural significance of the world's tallest rocking chair. However, the inability to thoroughly explore Delia's documents wasn't entirely my fault. I discovered that another writer named Rebecca Brown, at present there are two that avidly publish, was also investigating the life of Miss Bacon in order to write a fictional autobiography. The parsimonious curators of the manuscript collection wanted to ensure we were never in the same room at the same time. Unfortunately, I never came in contact with, nor was introduced to this brilliantly prolific, world-renowned author. I have spent many an evening since heaved over with heartfelt sighs. I also recently discovered that a woman who was not Rebecca Brown used the nom de plume Rebecca Brown in order to publish a work about the history of women mountain climbers. Cheers for the necessity of such a book. The world has been kept waiting for too long. However, although I regret saying it, I do believe Rebecca Brown was attempting to write on the coattails of someone else's success. Yet, another author by the name of Rebecca Brown, who has written a novel about coping with the death of a family member, has recently been brought to my attention, and I do not have the heart to accuse her of exploiting the name. I commend her bravery in these difficult times. Of course, all informed and conscientious readers are familiar with the critically celebrated author, also named Rebecca Brown. Not a day passes in which I do not think of her cleverly titled work, Buns and Puns, a humorous trek through the creases, cracks, and crevices of the famous and not so famous. <laughs> These are all real, by the way. Imagine the disappointment one feels upon discovering that others are more apt at creating memorable titles. Damn luck that I couldn't come think of such clever nomenclature for this particular work. Perhaps it would help vindicate my seemingly helpless case if I were to explain in more detail what occurred during my, albeit short, visit to the archives. The first obstacle to my success made itself apparent quite early on in my quest. I had written the curators in order to obtain permission to physically handle the copious tomes of delicate, moth-eaten, and moldering material. I felt fortunate to have located these manuscripts and was pleased at the amount available for grimy fingertips to wear and impair. There were over 300 items collected and kept within the climate-controlled, dimly-lit, earthquake-proofed conditions of the building. I alternated between feelings of bliss and terror when I seriously contemplated the amount of material I might encounter. Over 100 letters in Delia Bacon's tightly scrawled, virtually illegible script, long-winded biblical chastisements and famous hymns written by Delia's brother, Reverend Leonard Bacon, notes to publishers from Nathaniel Hawthorne detailing his perception of Delia's madness, jur journals blurry with ink-stained tears, medical records, pages and pages of vital material that would surely produce pleasure within the heart of any aspiring biographer. I found myself, however, the victim of unavoidable circumstances and couldn't feel the full extent of joy with which the avid researcher must undoubtedly be familiar. Um, because of incompetence in which I took no part, my letters of application for use of the archival materials were lost. Reluctantly, I do admit, I spilled half a latte on said correspondence as I walked swiftly to send these letters to post, and I had to ask the postal manager to allow them to dry under an eave near the building with which pigeons unhygienically roost. <laughs> I am now aware of the futility of explanations of import regarding certain irreplaceable documents to your local not-so-friendly postal worker. There will always be indolent employees who choose to disregard their obligatory civic duties. The earth would cease to turn without those who ignore the magnitude of material they are duty-bound to deliver. This is, of course, an indication of larger societal ills of which there is not enough time nor space to discuss. 
The employee I conducted my unprofessional business with apparently did not retrieve the dried letters from their place underneath the roof. But for the sake of consideration of all p potential alternatives, I will not ignore the idea that the United States Postal Service may not be entirely at fault. The manuscript curators very well could have been the culprits. It is about time their reputation as the gatekeepers of culture is seriously re-examined. Who knows at what level of bureaucracy these important documents were lost. Alas, this is not the place for frivolous accusations, although I feel ob obliged to inform discerning readers of a lawsuit pending with the skull and bones, may they meddle with my work no longer, and I will make a vast effort to maintain dignity and remain focused on the task at hand, which is to describe the countless entanglements within which I found myself while researching this colossal project. I will describe the impediments presented against me with hopes that the reader will understand my unforeseen plight. What toil and turbulence have been endured to present to you, worthy reader, this crucial work. Once I physically arrived at the archives, I was treated with a certain amount of disdain that cannot be described as anything less than pure, unadulterated detestation. Perhaps my neon nylon jogging suit was not professional enough attire to sit in a room with other academics, nosing their way through books. Or maybe it was the unfortunate and strange sickness I had caught on the train prior to my arrival. Because of a deplorable financial situation, why, oh why, is there a lack of intelligent patrons willing to support the production of brilliant, necessary work? I had to spend three days aboard the rumbling, nausea-inducing Amtrak. On the train, I was frequently accosted by a railroad employee, who shall remain nameless, but I will note that he looked as if he could have leapt out of a, a mine shaft circa 1857 with a bald head and beard that suggested a combination of elfishness and lunacy I have only heretofore encountered in dreams, who would not leave me alone for a moment to contemplate my impending work. One night, after dinner of rubberish chicken and powdered mashed potatoes, this man offered me a piece of his uneaten dessert a chocolate cake that looked as if it were made out of synthetic materials. Being the polite and gracious passenger that I am, I took this gift and ate it without hesitation. Before I realized my mistake, I was pitching back and forth in the forbidding Amtrak restrooms. I'll leave the details of this harrowing experience to the imagination of my readers. At any rate, this sickness followed me to the archives and caused me to run in and out of the reading room in unpredictable 15-minute spurts. I don't think the others present appreciated the frequent sound of flushing that perhaps ruinously interrupted their work. Ah, oh, well. If I have learned anything from this experience, I have learned that scholarship must go on, regardless of disrup disruption. Thankfully and thoughtfully, considering my desire for a renewed and healthy constitution, the institution provided an afternoon tea to which all present were invited. This afforded those working a chance to mingle and scrutinize the relevance of each other's research. I usually avoided attending these frivolous displays by leaving as early as possible, but on the day before my last at the archives, I decided to join the ranks of my colleagues by having a cup of tea with these local wits. I sat myself at a table that contained a group of historians who were all too content with ignoring my presence and talking shop about the latest unsuccessful biographers in their field. Although I do believe they were trying to be friendly by passing me a napkin when I accidentally dropped a chocolate wafer in my lap, I still could not participate in their insular camaraderie to the extent that I would have liked. One day, the world will open its welcoming arms and invite me in. But in the meantime, I must work diligently at proving my seriousness and value as a scholar. 
I am confident I will meet these intellectuals once again and say, e pluribus unum, or for those of you who require an interpretation, we came, we saw, we conquered. <laughs> to the reader, my sincerest apologies. I have had to invent material where it was not readily available to meet my investigatory needs. While some uninformed critics may refer to this as shoddy research practice, I prefer to characterize it as a fusion of innovative innovative methodologies with the mastery of boldness and bravura. Yours, R.B. <laughs> um, and this next bit I'm gonna read is just an excerpt from uh, Delia Bacon's fictional autobiography. So this is in Delia Bacon's voice. <clears throat> when my father left, I found myself in a fretful fire for Jesus. My brother Leonard loved the Lord and I couldn't bring myself beside him except by wanting the words and the writing. I wished I could eat those words and watch them drip slowly the length of my skin. They would become me. Words full of fire and fervor issued forth from our community corners in the boxed-in white wood of the churches to set the old reeling. During sermons, the mothers would sweat as if they were birthing, and the men fanned gnats from their hat brims. To want to eat the words, write the words, wasn't much like other women, Christian and wanting. I was not and am not a very good Christian. Leonard told me when I was young I was full of sinner desire. Everyone loves Leonard. As a youth, he had palpable fires for pulpits. He charmed the people from the boxed-in white wood of the churches to set their shriveled hearts reeling. Although a sinner, longing, I loved the revivals and the way the city burst from the spit-fired mouthings. They reminded me of my father. He had fled to the wilderness, had tried to move west westward to create a new colony where everyone would worship full of the fear, but who knows what evil was sent to harm him. He returned from the wild, shook and poverty-stricken, and died soon after to leave me. I hardly remember. I do remember that his hair was always clean and smelled of cedar shavings. He wouldn't hold me, but when he walked in from a long week of wandering, I could taste the smoke of his fires. My father issued forth from a long line of bacons somehow connected to Sir Francis. We are most of us esteemed. We are most of us Christian and wanting. Okay. Um, now I will read a bit from the Christian apocalyptic author Rebecca Brown. <laughs> she is real, <laughs> or unreal. Uh, Rebecca found that her hands were itching again and she couldn't stand it. Everything was quiet. She wondered when God might speak to her again. Two months had passed and she hadn't received a word. She missed the sound of his deep and intoxicated voice. The Satanists had even stopped planting firebombs inside of her stereo system and she missed their preoccupations. She was lonely. She thought about the possibility of writing another book. Her others had done so well, translated into many baffling, babbling tongues. There were so many sinners to speak to, so many who didn't know the law or lore and love. An alarm started buzzing from the bedroom. Once there was a time when God told her to get rid of her alarm clock so she would wake to the sound of his voice. Back then, he woke her at all hours to talk with her about all manner of things, such as his love of peaches and anthills. 
He would tell her not to go to the grocery store because Satanists were hiding inside plastic toys and boxes of cereal. He told her he liked her hair pulled back behind her ears. He also told her who would burn and who wouldn't, and to spread the word. He was the one who told her she should be a writer and copy down his thoughts. She listened avidly to his voice, recording everything he'd say, until one day when he simply stopped speaking. She bought an alarm clock to spite or incite him, yet he still did not respond. Okay. This next section is also narrated by a writer named Rebecca Brown. And she is a well-established um, fiction writer. Um, she's published a lot of novels. Okay. Rebecca sits sighing a bevy of forlorn gazes through a window increasingly filled with far-off stars. She wishes Elaine would call. She contemplates going to a bar, but knows if she does, she will fight or fuck and strangle. And this was part of a former life she did not wish to remember. She has shed that self in striations of painfully flocculating skin. When she was in her 20s drinking a fifth of vodka nightly and dating a woman who would throw dirt clods at her window whenever Rebecca would try to break their bonds and knots, a friend told her about a retreat in the desert that claimed to heal all ails. Whatever the issue, the, the creators of this sanctuary promised a visit to this hideaway would cure through intense therapy designed to imbibe the body with newfound verve. Although skeptical, Rebecca decided she would take a chance and try it. Nothing more than what she was then doing with her life could possibly hurt. She was tired of waking in drunken clouds inexplicably coiled and decided she needed a long-deserved break from a life of inexhaustible skirmish. She might as well have vacationed at Mount Olympus. If the magical healing occurred because of the visitor's incredulity at the ridiculousness of this particular therapeutic process, then Rebecca had arrived, hallelujah. This asylum was a haven for those interested in getting in touch with their inner stupidity. Women sat in semicircles covered with crystals and robes made of burlap meditating and burning from the blistering heat, but still as the desert that surrounded. Groups of men pushed baby carriages filled with cotton balls, and every time they felt angry, they picked up a handful of fluff and blew it from their palm with a passionate huff of, I love my mom. <laughs> Counselors. Counselors would huddle together in the cafeteria during dinner hour, occasionally shouting words like love, fever, trust, and the audience would reverberate back with an enthusiastic, we are us, that would echo amongst the clatter of silverware and tapioca smeared trays. Rebecca spent a week prescribed on the preposterousness of a neo-hippie generation. Part of the healing process was to spend time with a small group conceptualizing a planet filled with a superior sort of life form. They were to make sculptures of the buildings that would be present on their planet and create visual depictions of the alien land with sticks and stones picked from the refuse of desert. Rebecca's group named their planet Far-Fetched Opia as she was placed with other cynics like herself who sat cross-armed and joking through the week at night in the climate-controlled igloos they were roomed in. Rebecca's group knew she was a writer and commissioned her with creating Far-Fetched Opia's national anthem. Her group would sing it loud enough to block out the incomprehensible chanting they would hear rising up from the sacred sand crevice before the morning get-in-touch-with-touch meetings. Rebecca regrets not keeping in touch with Jaded, Lilith, and Thumbguzzler, names each of her group members had chosen for themselves and written sloppily with a sharpie across stickers under the familiar Hello My Name Is. Rebecca chose the name Snakey the Lone Shark because she liked trying to squish all the words into such a small space. 
Despite the ridiculousness of the week, Rebecca often missed her co-conspirators and their shared skepticisms. Their counselor, Glitter, did notice that their particular group experienced a breakthrough when they had to destroy far-fetched opia with golf clubs and wiffle ball bats to illustrate the concept of letting go. She says she could tell by the way Jaded had instinctively shared his prided eagle's lighter with Lilith to invite far-fetched opia's papier-mâché town hall that something magical had happened between them. For their breakthrough, they were awarded tiny plush cats with large button eyes, which they were asked to carry around until the graduation ceremony at the end of the day. Rebecca's group passed around a joint as they torched these childish prizes while glitter flit about them, clapping enthusiastically for a group that knew how to re relish individuality. I think I'm going to stop there. Um, thanks, you guys. What do you got? I tried. I tried to contact the fiction writer um, and just kind of tell her that I wrote a book with a character that's loosely, I very, not loosely, based on her. <laughs> but um, she never got back to me. Um, I would never try to contact the Christian author. Although she, I have received fan mail for her <laughs> in the past. It was a really bizarre letter that I did get in the mail. But, um, no, the, the fiction writer, um, Rebecca Brown and I, ended up kind of both writing a review of a, a book of poems at one point, and we're both kind of together. So I think she knows that I exist. I don't know. But that's, that's about the extent of it. Shakespeare's place, I can't remember which one, uh, for school. And in the introduction, there's a very brief mention of Delia Bacon. It said something like, of course, the first to propose that Shakespeare didn't write his own works was Delia Bacon, and her life ended in madness and seclusion, or something like that. And it was <laughs> that, that sense, yeah. And then that sort of drew me to her. And I, I just realized that. Um, she led such an interesting life. I mean, she was really well-known, well-respected. Um, she went to school with Har Harriet Beecher Stowe, was her classmate. Catherine Beecher was her teacher. Um, Nathaniel Hawthorne paid out of pocket to publish her book of the Shakespearean conspiracy theory. Um, but she kind of fell through the cracks as this mad woman. So I, I was just compelled to sort of like, I guess, resurrect her in a way. and. 
it's interesting because she was institutionalized like many women in the 19th century for, I, I, I could not find any sort of diagnosis for her except that she talked loudly. <laughs> so... <laughs> Patty, um, so I, I don't do poetry, but uh, um, but, I, but I, it's, it's so wonderful to hear your stuff. If I were, if I did do poetry and I understood things like Longfellow or Blake, which I don't, would that would that give me insights into the work? So you make references in, in many of your poems to Longfellow, Blake, Plato, and so on. If I if I actually did know that work, would that would that connect, does that connect to the to the poem? I think it. I think that I give um, little pieces enough of the author, enough of the reference, so that somebody listening, if they have the work in front of them, you might say, oh, Whitman, I contain multitudes. And usually it's enough information that will trigger almost institutional memory of, or, you know, of, oh, yeah, I remember Whitman. I sing the body electric. I saw fame. You know, I mean, that sort of, you know, <laughs> tap into something of that. Um, on hearing it, it's more of a challenge. And as a, I think as a listener, for me, I experience this too, and I listen to other poets, sometimes I think, I'll think, oh, that's interesting. I should go look that up, or I should think about that. And usually it's sort of, yeah, I sort of remember something like that. Or, you know, the idea of Blake, that progress happens, it, it goes these things called contrarieties, such a great word, you know, um, what basically when things conflict. I, I think ideally it will send you, as the listener or the reader, back into those texts if you're interested, you know. And if not, I think I provide enough information that it's not alienating. I don't love to be alienated. I mean, I feel as a poet, we live on so much on the fringe, like I'm very actually comfortable with some degree of alienation, but I want a work to invite you in to some degree and also maybe to sort of teach you something and make you think about also what you already know, bringing your previous knowledge. So I'm hoping that it's usually in a, in a, in a good reader, listeners, somewhere in that body of knowledge that you learned way long ago and that seems familiar. And if not, maybe it says to you, I'm going to go look that up. What did Whitman say about multitudes? You know, so, um, but it's, it's, you know, when you, that's usually when you have the book in front of you. And when you're up here, you have one shot, you know, and you just hope that, it, that it's interesting enough, you know. So, thanks. Um, speaking on that, uh, engaging the reader, do you kind of consciously consider what you're doing to engage the reader on your own terms, or is it just kind of what flows out of you and you hope they pick up on all these emotional cues and things like that? How do you engage the reader? I'm, um, you know, I'm a democratist by nature, which is to say, I, I'm, I like the reader. I, um, I want to connect with the reader, but I also want the reader to work a little bit, and that's partly because I think the reader wants to work a little bit. You know, I think good readers want to feel, um, to varying degrees, challenged. So I want to be engaging, and I think that comes through in voice. I think that's just what my voice is. I mean, I, I want to reach out to people. It's really important to me, and when I teach, it's really important. It's not. It's not necessarily a, a um, fashionable aesthetic in poetry, you know, but um, it matters to me. I think about my brothers, neither of them, one's a retired teacher 
and one's a retired lawyer. And they're both smart men. They both have really better educations than I do. And I sort of think, if they don't get what the fuck I'm talking about, maybe I should think about that. You know, because they're really smart. I'm so, oh, there's a baby. I'm so, I swore. I'm so sorry. You know, that's, um, I, 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 um, I don't... I, I, I want to be somewhat available, but I want, but I also want to be challenging, simply because I want to challenge. So I guess I'm sort of writing for myself as the reader. What do I want? What do I want? So I don't know if that helps. Yeah. Um, just, just to echo what uh, Patty has said, too, I, you know, I, I think I uh, kind of, this might sound narcissistic or something, but I've, I mean, the book, uh, I don't know. I think I sort of write, write, Right for myself at first, but I begin to think about the reader more. I think as I revise, as well. I mean, like you can't ever divorce yourself from reader at all. I mean, it's texts don't exist in a vacuum, you know. And um, it, I think in the moment, in the process of writing, it almost does feel like that space that's um, kind of completely individual and maybe like divested from the world in some way, but that's just, that's not how, like, language works, and that's not how, um, like, texts even move throughout the world, so you, you can't not consider the reader, although um, I think if you think too much about pleasing a certain audience, um, that sometimes that, that might get in the way of either you taking risks as an artist or something like that, um, so, yeah. That's a hard question. <laughs> All right. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.